0: 2nd Kings 18. I'm going to be reading the first section here, verses 1 through 12. In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel... Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the son of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. According to all that David, his father, had done, he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. In the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, he took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozen, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. Let's pray that prayer. We pray, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. i we'll straighten myself out here. Many of you are aware, I hope, that I am a Phillies fan, or was until Tuesday. (laughs) That means I have suffered much this week. What else is new? Um, But, you know, last Sunday I I still had some hope left, and um, I went to watch the game at my mom's house. And baseball fans, you may know, are some of the most superstitious people In the world. Uh, My sister, who has never been a baseball fan, has recently taken interest, and she was in town from California, which is why we went down, and and she had worn a Phillies jersey earlier in the week, and we had won, and she decided that it had something to do with the way her jersey was buttoned. (laughs) But she couldn't remember which button she had skipped that day, and so we tried every possible combination throughout the game, Uh, depending on how it was going. And we eventually won, but of course it was impossible to know which of the arrangements had worked, right? So we hadn't figured it out. Uh, And then we proceeded, of course, to lose the next two games, no matter what she did. So eventually she just threw it on the floor, I think, in game seven. Uh, Now, this was just us being silly. Uh, But superstitions like this are as old as the hills. And left unchecked, Even such silly things can become idolatries. Uh, They can become bizarre. And I will admit that, you know, I didn't mess around too much with the buttons, maybe a little, on my jersey, but uh, I do change, like, the way I'm sitting based on how things are going. uh, I will change and, and make decisions based on how I'm feeling about where I'm going to watch the game, uh, what I'm wearing, uh, the beer I'm drinking, I changed on that because the Yingling has had a, a Phillies pee on it, but then that wasn't working, and, you know, uh, I, it gets weird. I, I, I pace, I grip my teeth funny ways, I hold my breath at certain times. Uh, I will work harder on my superstition And appeasing the mysterious forces of the baseball gods, these forces at work, as they say, instead of just trusting God with the thing, including the outcome of baseball games. And so what started off as good, watching a game with family, right, becomes a weird fixation for me pretty quickly. And, you know, if you're not a baseball person or a Phillies fan, you know from the outside that this is silly, uh, when the Phillies blow it, it's not because of my superstition, it's because that's what they do, right? <laughs> but the the pull of superstition is sort of relentless. Outsiders, like my wife, who doesn't really get that emotionally involved here, she can see this all plainly, right? Superstitions are ridiculous to the people who are not engaged in them. I, I, I read recently a cartoon, it's by uh, uh, Nathan Pyle, called Strange Planet, maybe you've seen it, and uh, the kids are reading... Uh, 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 cereal in the thing and it's supposed to be lucky charms but they always put it in ridiculous language so on the late well it says fortunate amulets is what it's called as they're you know looking for the cereal and it's like calling it that makes it even more ridiculous when you go you know if, if i have a lucky charm if i have a fortunate amulet i'm really being ridiculous at this point you know and outsiders can see this but for baseball fans this is just routine everything i was doing is time honored tradition i will stop shaving i'll stop changing my socks whatever it takes right And I think what's true of baseball fans is true of humanity in general. And it is true of the church. It is our tendency to take something good and get weird with it and let it become a superstition and, left unchecked, it will become idolatrous. And when that happens, we need a wake-up call. One might say, we need a reformation. How's that for a segue? (laughs) Idolatry demands reformation. And, of course, today is Reformation Sunday. It's one of the least appreciated holidays. Even Hallmark hasn't gotten on the bandwagon yet. Uh, You may have seen the posters for the movie night tonight at Living Hope, and Phil mentioned it earlier. Uh, I I hope some of you will make it out, and if you can't, maybe we'll show it again ourselves. I I also own a copy you can borrow. It's also free on YouTube if it comes to that. Uh, And while it takes some poetic license, it's probably more accurate than whatever Phil said, and so it's a great film... (laughs) we learning about Martin Luther and what drove the Reformation in the first place, and that's a big part of church history, and as Protestants, that certainly applies to us. But, of course, we, we tend to think of the Reformation as one particular time period, uh, as if the only time the church reformed was in the 1500s. Of course, that's not true. A, a frequent criticism of Protestants is that we act as though history began with Luther. I don't think that's fair, but people do say so. But I think it's fitting and providential that Reformation Day and All Saints Day sort of fall together because the history of the church from the beginning has been a history of ref- Reformation. The saints who went before us spent so much of their lives combating falsehoods, trying desperately to steer God's people in a better, truer, and more scriptural path. And the flavor of falsehoods changes with every age, but the church in every age has stood on God's word and fought back against the popular heresies of their culture in their day. And it tends to be a cycle. Uh, God's people get off track, because that's what we do best, and then the Holy Spirit, in a gracious act, puts the church back on track. He raises up leaders who will call the church to repentance and renewal, and that's how revival and reformation happen. And I've been reflecting on the fact that this idea of reform is not new. It's not even 500 years old. It's ancient. Reformation, reform, is a scriptural concept. And, I mean, that's really what we were talking about when we were going through Ezra, right? Uh, Ezra walks into Jerusalem thinking he could just teach, but instead his work becomes primarily reforming the church, if you like, uh, to put God's people back on track. And that's certainly not the only time we see reforms in the Old Testament. If you go and do a Bible gateway search in the ESV, for instance, you'll find multiple headings of multiple chapters talking about reforms. So 2 Kings 23, Josiah's reforms. 2 Chronicles 15, Asa's reforms. 2 Chronicles 19, Jehoshaphat's reforms. Jehoiada's reforms in 2 Chronicles 23. Uh, And very soon we're getting into Nehemiah. There's whole sections on Nehemiah's reforms. And even without using that specific word, we see reforms all over the Old Testament. On multiple occasions, Moses had to reform and correct the waywardness of the people. If you read the book of Judges, it goes through this very cycle many times. It starts out with them being in sin. Sin leads to slavery. Slavery eventually leads to repentance and reforms and deliverance and revival. And then back again to the beginning. Every good king of Israel and Judah, the few that there were, also had reigns that were characterized by reform. That's how you know that they're godly. They step in and they start to reform things. And what that tells me is two things. That again, reformation is a scriptural idea. It's a good thing. And also that reform is necessitated by idolatry. It is necessary precisely because it is our tendency to screw up and to end up in idolatry. We need reform, not because change is good for its own sake, but because we get off track when left to our own devices. And reform is also, by definition, not meant to be revolutionary. It is always conservative in the sense that it's bringing things back into line. Reform means bringing things back to where they should be. And I think this is particularly true with regards to worship. And with that in mind, and since I wanted to take a short break before we get into Nehemiah, I was thinking about biblical examples of reform. Because I'm not here to preach Martin Luther, but God's word. If you want to learn about Luther? Go watch the movie. I'm here to preach scripture, and I don't think Luther would have it any other way. But this Bible story that kept coming to my mind, and that has been kind of rolling around in there for a few weeks, was this story about Hezekiah uh, that I read a minute ago. I've thought about it before because it's a profound reform, but I think the most striking part of it only takes up half a verse. Uh, But it's been on my mind, like I said, for a a few weeks, uh, really since we covered the second commandment in Sunday school. But just to give some background on on Hezekiah and what's happening when we we get to this point, many of you know that Israel, after Solomon, divided into a a northern and a southern kingdom. Uh, The north was called Israel, the south is Judah. Judah. And most of the kings of both nations were pretty lousy, according to scripture, uh, although Israel tended to have the worse. Um, Hezekiah was a king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and he was the son of Ahaz. Now, Ahaz was a lousy, terrible king. Uh, you can read his story in 2 Kings 16 in your own spare time. But Ahaz, the dad, he, he engaged in child sacrifice including his own son. So Hezekiah's brother was burned on an altar. Uh, He imitated the nations that God had driven out. The scripture says he made offerings on all the high places. The author of Kings says every hill, every green tree basically became his altar, Uh, meaning he did not properly honor Jerusalem or focus the worship on the temple. He did whatever he felt like. Uh, Worship for Ahaz was purely personal and had little to do with what God wanted. Uh, At one point, Israel and Syria attacked Ahaz, and he enlisted Assyria, a wicked nation, as an ally. And to get them on board, he stole from the temple to pay the king of Assyria off. After the war, Ahaz visited Damascus, and while he was there, he fell in love with a pagan altar that he saw. And so he literally had the priests in Jerusalem make a copy of it so that he could worship like they did, basically replacing the original altar in the temple. And the new altar was made of bronze. Uh, he used the new altar basically as something of a magic eight ball. It says that he, he wanted to inquire by it, is the way it's worded. So basically, he's using it as his magic eight ball. He did lots of other weird things, and unsurprisingly, he died young. Hezekiah, therefore, stands in significant contrast to his father. He is certainly a rare example of a good king. The author of Kings makes no bones about it. I want to look again just at verses 3 and 5 and the way he describes this man. He says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David his father had done. And up to verse 5, He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. Well, that's saying something. Something. Why don't we use that name more often? We've got to get on that. I mean, he positions Hezekiah as the envy of all kings since the nation split after Solomon, like nobody can touch this guy. And and the scripture gives proof of this in part by contrasting him not only with his father, but also with the northern kingdom in the same time period, because it was while Hezekiah was reigning in Judah that Israel fell and was taken captive, as we read in verses 9 and following. So the exile of the northern kingdom begins in in Hezekiah's reign. Assyria completely destroys the northern kingdom and would gladly have done the same with Hezekiah and Judah. And yet we're told that Hezekiah rebelled against Assyria and he got away with it. Read again verse 7. The Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. Now, we don't have time to look at the whole story of Hezekiah's resistance and war with Assyria. It's quite dramatic. It's worth reading. Uh, It's in the following chapters. You can read that on your own time. But the author makes clear here that the reason Hezekiah got away with this was because unlike his neighbors to the north, Hezekiah held fast to the Lord and to the commands of Moses. Look again at verse 6. He held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And again, this is a direct contrast to what the same author says a few verses later about Israel, the northern kingdom, in verses 11 and 12. The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Hala uh, on the verse 12 because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all That Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, they neither listened nor obeyed. So the dividing line, the contrast that's being presented to you, is that this test of whether you're going to survive the Assyrian onslaught is determined by whether you held fast to the Lord, and you did that by keeping the commands that God gave through Moses. So Moses is like a fault line, he's the test: did you listen to what he had to say or not? Hezekiah passes the test, while Hosea, king of Israel, fails. And while Judah later also falls into exile, they are later restored under Ezra, right? But the northern kingdom was never restored. But how you handled Moses' commands, what God commanded through Moses, that's the key. If your worship aligns with God's word, you survive. If not, you're in danger. Idolatry is dangerous. But what exactly did Hezekiah do to demonstrate that he held fast to the Lord and to Moses. We're told he did what is right. What does that mean? Well, the only real specifics we have are in verse 4. It says he removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. Okay, that's basically shorthand, again, for Hezekiah undoing a lot of what his father did. Uh, His father worshipped God on every hill he could find. He had no discernment. Uh, It was, in fact, a form of schism because he divided God's people by having them worshipping all over the place alone and on their own terms, but Hezekiah does not Father follow his father's folly. He goes around and he topples every one of these poles on every hill and destroys the pagan monuments so that they're no longer shrines. And he's focusing the worship back on the temple, back on Jerusalem, reforming the worship by unifying it in the place where God dwells. Now, many of the good kings did similarly to that. Uh, when a godly king was on the throne, the big test really was whether he would remove the Asherah poles because they would spring up like weeds every time a bad king was on the throne. Now, this wasn't necessarily a pole. It was just a place where they would give offerings to Asherah. She was a holdover Canaanite goddess, a fertility goddess who was portrayed as Baal's wife. But in the rural countryside, she would come back up. She was often worshipped in place of God, or perhaps worse, alongside him, sometimes as his wife. And so Hezekiah rightly got rid of those. But what grabs my attention more is what happens in the second part of the verse, something that's unique to Hezekiah. This only happens once. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. I find this strange on so many levels. Uh, I, first of all, we should probably go back and explain what this thing was, because some of you may know the story, some of you may not. If you're like me and you've ever tried to read the Bible straight through without a reading plan, uh, you probably got stuck early in Leviticus, right? Uh, but if you ever did make it through the book of Numbers, you learn a few more funny little stories. And in Numbers 21, we have this story of the bronze serpent. And it's not very long. I'm actually going to just read it. It's it's compared to a lot of other stories in the, the uh first five books It's actually quite short. It begins, it's 21, four to nine. You don't have to turn there unless you're so inclined. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. Like, what else is new, right? Are we there yet? Verse five, and the people spoke against God and against Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. I'm going to pause just a moment there uh, to appreciate why God might have been irritated at this point. I don't know if you caught the whole, there's no food and we hate this food thing. Every parent in this room has heard this speech. What's more, every person in this room has probably given this speech at some point in their life. You all have mothers and you all owe them an apology. she probably showed more forbearance than God does here. Verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Okay. Let's be honest, this is a weird story to begin with. It's weird that God would even use this method to heal people. Like, he could have just said, Moses, I hear you, fine, I'll take the snakes away. But no. Instead, he leaves the snakes but gives them this strange cure. Like, look at a metallic, fiery snake on a stick and you'll live. And he doesn't even promise that they'll be cured or that they won't suffer. He doesn't say the snake bite will stop hurting. He simply promises, meh, you'll live. Like mom, when you scrape your knee. And it's a strange thing. God doesn't do anything quite like this that I can think of anywhere else. It seems almost to invite a superstitious attitude about the bronze snake. And in fact, over time, we see the snake on a staff as a symbol of healing in many other ancient cultures, including Egypt and later Greece. And to this day, every ambulance that you'll ever see has the rod of Asclepius somewhere on it. Two snakes round around a pole to symbolize the Greek god of healing. So not only could it become an idolatrous symbol, it ultimately did, but what's remarkable is not that it becomes an idol to all the outsiders, it's that it becomes an idol for the Israelites. And I can't get over the fact that it lasted this long. If this rod dates back to the days of Moses, it is now nearly a thousand years old at this point. And the author of Kings implies that they've been making offerings to it forever. They're accustomed to using it in their worship. And yet we see it mentioned nowhere between Numbers 21 and 1 Kings 18, 2 Kings 18. It's such a fact of life that it bears no mentioning at all. People become accustomed to things. You don't bother explaining things that you just do. And there are many things in life like that. We have routines we never question, just like in baseball. Like, I don't explain to my kids why you get up and sing at the seventh inning stretch. Sure, it's weird, but we just do that, okay? Why do you stand for the national anthem? Just shut up and do it. Put your hand over your heart. Take your hat off. It's what we do. It's like trying to explain to them why you have to whisper at funerals. I don't know. It's just a fact of life. It's how we do this thing. And no doubt... The cult of Nehushtam was like that. I think it probably began with good intentions. Like, why wouldn't you honor this thing that God had used in such a mighty way? We can simply place an offering in front of it, for God, not for the snake. And we'll be worshiping the true God, using the serpent to remind us of him. That sounds sensible. And for nearly a thousand years, that's exactly what they did. And God was seemingly silent on the matter. Let it slide. So why would anyone second guess it? Why reevaluate? We've always done this. What's wrong with it? Why change it now? God told Moses to make it. There's nothing wrong with it. And then Hezekiah comes along. And after he cuts down all the Asherah poles, everything out on the periphery, he's like, all right. He looks back home at this serpent thing. And he's watching people laying offerings before it and kneeling before it, facing it to pray, maybe, teaching their kids to do the same. And he starts to think, hmm, not sure I'm seeing much distinctions here. And he's starting to sniff out that maybe they have idolatry cropping up right in his own house. And he does the unthinkable. He says, chop it up. I don't want to see it anymore. If you can imagine breaking such an artifact, like talk about an iconoclast. There's no question that we would preserve such a thing, at the very least for a museum. Archaeologists must read this passage and groan inside. Indiana Jones would be horrified. Imagine chasing Nazis to the ends of the earth in a race to recover the mysterious bronze snake that cures people only to find a note saying, Yeah, sorry, I broke it. Sincerely, Hezekiah. How do you have the audacity to break Moses's staff? It's an heirloom. It's priceless. It's a piece of the national identity and history. I got to admit, it would make a nice piece in the British Museum. I would have liked to have seen it. But Hezekiah says, it's got to go. Was that the right way to handle it? couldn't we have phased it out carefully, gradually? You know, like move it from the narthex to a dark corner where people aren't paying attention and it's not well lit, you know, and then next year we'll move it to the basement, you know, and then we're going to cover it up in a closet until people forget about it. You know, like that's what I would do. I have found in my limited, not quite five years of ministry that change is often unpopular. Uh, Even small changes can trigger people. In fact, I won't go into specifics because anything I mention might trigger somebody right now. (laughs) So sometimes it's easier to ignore problems. Other times it seems easier to make very slight gradual changes. And even then, it can bite you. I'm not alone in this, and it's certainly not unique to our church. I have a friend who faced a near uprising in his church for moving the American flag off the stage. Why? Because you were dishonoring the veterans. It's always been there. Why fix what ain't broke? And you have no idea how people will cling to such things until you mess with those things. And they generally start as good things, well-intentioned things. The bronze serpent of Moses was obviously a good thing, right? It was God's idea. It worked. He's preserved it this long. But it became an idol. Idols are good things that become God things. And once that happens, they're no longer good. It's a little like a dog with a bone. You guys most have met our two big mutts at home. Sprocket and Falkor. Dumb mutts, too, I'll say. When they were young, and even more dumb and impetuous, uh, we bought them some bones. They were smoked bones, good ones, from the farmer's market. And they loved them. And they smelled so good that even I kind of found them appealing and thought, like, man, they got it good. Georgia would never let me take a snack like that to bed, you know, but they did. But as sometimes happens with dogs, when they were young, especially, they started acting territorial. And eventually one of them growled and bared his teeth at one of the kids. And in that moment, I said, heck no. Now you can't have it anymore. The bone has to go. They got a smack on the snout, too, because I don't play that game. I will not have the dogs more attached to the bone than to my kids. And they had gotten their priorities out of whack. The bone was good till it wasn't good anymore. (coughs) They weren't allowed to have it. The bronze serpent was good, but the Jews are not allowed to have it anymore. And I am willing to bet that this was one of the least popular moves Hezekiah made during his reign. It's easy to sing his praises now when the author is living, you know, a couple hundred years later. But I bet tears were shed. I bet urgent appeals were made. I bet there were a lot of whispered conversations. I bet petitions were signed. I bet people got mad. There may have even been threats. They're not recorded here, but it had to be that way because it's human nature. You don't just mess with people's routines, especially their religious routines and habits and rituals, without hearing about it. And I bet there were many good people there who urged moderation on the question and told them to simply put it in storage, out of sight. You know, look, it's waited a thousand years. Let's take a few more weeks and pray on it. Let's arrange a cabinet meeting and discuss. But Hezekiah says, no, it's got to go. Like a dog with the bone, they can't have it anymore. It's becoming dangerous. And the sense we get is that Hezekiah was not subtle about this on any level. Breaking the thing in pieces is not very subtle to begin with, but the name itself, Nehushtan, is also, I think, telling, because in Hebrew, it sounds similar to bronze and to serpent, but many lexicons... I think it's likely the term is a term of mockery. Basically, it's a hunk of brass. And that seems to be Hezekiah's attitude. It had been nice. My mother used to say sometimes, we can't have anything nice. Now, what she meant was, we couldn't have anything nice because we, her kids, would break it. Or the dog would eat it, or whatever. Whatever. And of course, now that we've all moved out and she's living her best life now, I don't hear it anymore. (laughs) But she was right. We ruined everything, pretty much. And so it is with the people of God. Our default setting is to screw up just about everything to get off track. And over time, we become idolatrous, even in our worship if we're not careful. We can't have Certain good things because we have made almost everything into an idol if we get the chance. So, was Hezekiah right to do something so drastic? Well, the answer in the text seems to be a resounding yes. Again, the author says there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. He held fast to the Lord. Hezekiah does not cling to Moses. He does not cling to history. He does not cling to tradition. He does not cling to a proud heritage. Hezekiah clings to the Lord and to his commandments. The power is not in the serpent, and it's not in Moses or in relics or even in the temple, but in God and his word. Beloved, we need to hear this because we're all guilty of violating this. I'm not picking on any single one of you. I've got problems, too. Uh, I get attached to things. I get attached to ideas. You can get attached to things we do here every week. You get, get attached to things we don't do here every week. Superstitions creep in so quickly. We have idols forming under our nose in the best of times, and they are dangerous. That's certainly true for the church corporately as well. I mean, it's easy. We could, we could pick on Catholic shrines or Orthodox icons, but we Protestants also have our own shrines commemorating the saints. <laughs> you may have seen it in some churches, you know, the Edith Schultz Memorial baptismal font, and, you know, this hymnal given in honor of Aunt Sue and the Bob Smith Memorial boiler room or whatever. And, of course, we do these things to honor the past, and to stand as testimonies to our ancestors. And I think the instinct is natural and even wholesome in a way, but I, I wonder if Edith Schultz would be ashamed to know her name was on anything because she's in glory and she knows better than us that the glory doesn't belong to her. And if Moses' serpent had to be chopped, maybe those things are fair game too. But we low-key idolize other stuff as well our favorite programs and traditions and music. It's not easy to see the idolatry when it's under our own nose. The closer and more personal it is to us, the more oblivious we are, because let's be honest, no one thinks of their idols as idols, right? It's everyone else's idols that are obvious to us. Mine are completely sane and reasonable and well thought out. I don't have a problem. You have a problem. And that's why Reformation is so important. It's not Martin Luther's idea. This is Scripture. God constantly calls his people back in the line, back into conformity with the gospel. And it is a gospel issue because your idols, any idols, take your eyes off of Jesus. Reform is not supposed to be a radical thing. Again, it is by nature conservative. Our idols, even the respectable ones, are what is radical. And reform is meant to point us away from our accumulated idols and back to God and his word, back to Jesus. And we need it more than we know. Because idolatry is awfully sneaky, and it is very creative. John Calvin was not wrong to say that the heart is an idol factory. So yes, the church as an institution needs frequent reform, but so do we all. I don't want to leave anybody off the hook. Again, please don't read what I'm saying so broadly that you miss the application to you. The church needs reform because we, as individual Christians, need frequent reform. We get off track. We develop bad habits. We take our eyes off of Christ and focus instead on his gifts. And we'll offer our time and our treasure and our labors to things that may have been good in the beginning, but have quietly replaced our first love. I can't say what your specific idols are, but you have them and I have them. Because God didn't give the second commandment just to apply it to some pagan tribes out there somewhere. It's for me and for you. So on this Reformation Sunday, I want all of us to reflect on what that means for us in our own lives We could all use reform, even though it might be painful sometimes, but idols are dangerous, and that's why God does it. But I also want to encourage you, because I think God was pleased with what Hezekiah did. But I also want to note that he did not condemn his people for their folly. God takes the bone away, but he doesn't smack them on the snout for growling. He is patient with his people, And he is not quick to punish. And I want you to remember ultimately that Hezekiah is not the hero of the story. The ultimate reformer is not Hezekiah any more than it's Martin Luther. The ultimate reformer is Jesus. And I don't say that to be cute, and I don't say it for poetic effect. If you do a concordance search, the word reformation appears only once. Uh, The author of Hebrews uses the word in chapter 9. And he's in the midst of describing the Old Testament worship practices, all these things we've been seeing. And he says that under the Old Testament dispensation, he says, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. And here's how he describes that ultimate Reformation. He says, but when Christ appeared, As a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. If you are in Christ, the ultimate reformation has already happened. He's already passed through the barrier and offered the only perfect sacrifice. You can't add to it, you can't take away from it. He did it once for all, and it is eternal. He has done to sin what Hezekiah did to the bronze serpent, but on steroids. And none of the reforms we read about in the Old Testament were permanent, obviously. They keep happening because God's people keep messing it up. They can never reform themselves fully. And you can't reform yourself. Left to your own devices, you will slip into idolatry every time. But Jesus is the ultimate reformer. And his spirit is at work in his people. And you have a high priest who is making all things new. Starting with us. And that's good news on Reformation Sunday. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that you have raised up in the past, all the way from the beginning, really, reformers, people to lead and call your people back to faithfulness, back to your word, back to the gospel, back to Christ. Lord, we thank you that you do not give up on your people. You don't cast us aside and start over again. You continue to renew and revive You are so good. And Lord, we thank you that the time of reformation has already come, that Christ has already unworked sin. He's put it to death. Lord, help us to rest in that hope, Lord. And as we wait for his glorious return, when we will be finally freed of all vestiges of sin, Lord, we pray that you would continue to reform us, conform us to your word, by your spirit, Lord, you have the power to do it, and we know that you are at work in your church. Teach us to be receptive to it. Give us confidence in this, Lord. Confidence in the gospel. Confidence in Christ and his spirit. We pray that for us today, this week, and every day going forward. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings